Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Hannah. All right. Well, again, let me welcome all the third through fifth graders and the other kids who are younger who have snuck in here and skipping Sunday school. We are excited that you are joining us for worship. You know, I should mention that uh, in addition to Miss Margay, she would want to deflect some of the praise. And so if you can't quite fight your way through the crowds to wish her happy birthday, you can wish Rick happy birthday. His birthday is tomorrow. And then Scott, happy birthday. His birthday is today. All right. Um, so uh, there's, yeah, lots of, lots of love to go around. Now, in the midst of all this love and, you know, maybe there's someone who's sitting there going, well, you didn't mention my birthday. Um, we don't have it in the database. That's why I didn't mention your birthday. Um, so we'd love to, for you to put it in there. But I think this highlights maybe what could be one of the worst feelings, at least one of the worst feelings for me as a member of a church is the sense that you can kind of feel stuck and kind of feel alone. You know, it's, it's awful to feel stuck anyways, right? Stuck in a career, stuck in a job, stuck at school, stuck at home, stuck, right? Lots of ways to feel stuck, but also just personally, like, I don't feel like I'm growing, um, changing, maturing, uh, moving in life, and then alone. You know, no one, no one wants to feel lonely, but I think this is, these are two particularly uh, difficult things for us in the church, because everything about what we're doing this morning from the announcements to the songs to the singing of happy birthday, all kind of communicates you shouldn't feel that way, right? You feel stuck? How, how could you? Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven, has died for your sins. The good news of the gospel is now over your life. The penalty of sin has been broken. The power can be weakened in your life. How can you be stuck? How can you not be a growing Christian, right? Or... You feel alone? How could you feel lonely? Jesus died to create a new community, right? And we don't live according to the standards of the world. We live according to the standards of the kingdom of heaven. We create a new culture of belonging and encouragement for those who are part of it. How could you feel lonely? 
And yet, I feel, in talking with many of you, I know some of you can feel stuck and alone. And that actually being part of a church just seems to highlight it and make you feel worse about it because of the self-condemnation that can come from how you shouldn't feel this way. And look, you don't, I understand, you don't have to be part of a church or a Christian just to feel this way. The YouTube recommendations, right, of all the TED Talks or things that you could be doing better in this life, right, are coming at you all the time. You know, like, here's all the other rules for living. I, I get it. We're constantly getting this message that's saying you're stuck and you're alone. You're stuck and you're alone. And so buy this or read this or do this. And yet I also know that church can feel that way as well. And the reason I bring all this up is because I can't think of anyone who would feel more stuck and alone than blind Bartimaeus from our story here. He's literally stuck on the roadside. He's sitting in darkness. He's begging. He's all alone. He's at this point just become part of the landscape, right? People ignore him as they walk by or maybe toss him a few coins as he remembers what it used to be like to have his sight and live inside the city and be part of a community. And now how he's just utterly dependent on anyone who may happen to see him, even though he can't see them. So talk about feeling stuck and alone. And yet, Jesus comes to him and performs this incredible miracle. Heals him brings him in to join the community, right? Because notice he goes from stuck on the roadside to at the end, he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. He goes from stuck on the way to now part of the band rolling with Jesus, traveling, no longer in the dark, no longer alone, and no longer stuck. Changing, growing, on the move. And I read this and I think, come on, God, I just want a little extra juice in my quiet time on Mondays. Like just a little extra oomph of like, yes, that was moving to me. And like the playlist I made is kind of running out and the reading plan is kind of a little dry or church isn't quite there. We're waiting for Jeff to come back for a sabbatical, right? Whatever it may be, you may think, I, can you just get me a little unstuck and man, it would sure be nice if I could do this with some other people a little bit tighter because I'm seeing other people and they seem to have the community that I want. So what are we to do here? Now, it's important to remember that as we read the Gospel of Mark, why it's written. It's written to let us know right, who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do and what that means for our lives. And so as we read a story like this, there's actually a lot of questions that kind of can rise to the surface when we understand what Mark's doing of, of why does this story right here? Like, why didn't he just put all the miracle stories together in the miracle section? You know, why is it that after what might be the height of this monumental theological statement that Jesus made in just the verse before, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, You've got that monument on one side. And then the other side, you have the triumphal entry of Jesus, that event that we celebrate on Palm Sunday where he rides into the city of Jerusalem coming up. And stuck right in here is the very last healing miracle that Jesus is ever going to do in the book of Mark. 
And stuck between these monumental positions are also some weird things about this, is that Bartimaeus is the only person other than Lazarus who is named as being healed of Jesus. All the other healings Jesus does in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what are known as the three synoptic gospels, no one's named except Bartimaeus. The only other name we have of someone is Lazarus being raised from the dead, right? And that's in the book of John. And so we have this odd placement. We know this man's name. This is the last healing. And so what's Jesus doing? What's Mark trying to teach us from his gospel as he sets this up? Now, Mark's been teaching on discipleship. It started back in chapter 8, where he's saying, this is what my disciples are going to be like. This is what it's going to mean to follow me. If I am the Messiah, if I'm the anointed one that Peter confessed, then here's what it means to be a disciple. And the model disciple isn't the successful rich young ruler. The model disciple isn't even the disciples James and John and Peter, because we see that in the last three chapters, they've kind of been blundering their discipleship process. No, the model disciple are infants and children, as we saw earlier in chapter 10. Or at the end here, the model disciple is the blind beggar. It's the blind beggar who gets unstuck and who finds a community, a team to be a part of. You see, these stories aren't just random healings. They're always taught with a purpose. There's a purpose to them. And one of the purposes that we're going to see this morning is that what Jesus has come to do is he has come to give sight to the blind. You see, when we read during the time of confession, we read where Jesus quotes that text, right, from the Old Testament, where he says, it's, it's from the reading of Isaiah, it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. And we know that that recovering of sight to the blind is both literal, but it's, of course, spiritual, that we're spiritually blind. The Apostle Paul, he uses this in Ephesians chapter 1, where he says, I've heard of your faith, and so church in Ephesus, here's what I'm praying for you guys in your region. I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering in you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So he's writing this to a church. They've already had their eyes open spiritually, right? And yet he's saying, eh, nah, nah, but your vision's not that great yet. And so I'm praying that your vision gets clearer and clearer and clearer, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. And so what we're going to look at now in this story then is what does it mean to be spiritually blind? What does it look like to have spiritual sight? And then, of course, how do we go from blind to seeing? How do we, as the Apostle Paul prays for the church and as we see this theme running throughout all of the scriptures, how do we move from blind to seeing clearly? All right, so let's look at that first question. What does it mean to be spiritually blind? Okay, and I kind of want to slow us down a little bit. And the reason I want to slow us down is because it's very clear here right, that the disciples are, are people, you know, the Pharisees, everyone Jesus has been talking to is spiritually blind, okay? But it can be really easy for us to kind of take that concept, spiritual blindness, and just kind of like 
make it a metaphor for some really cool moving stuff. Okay, here's what I mean by that. Maybe you saw the viral video from a couple months ago where a pastor of a very large church brought up a member on stage, and when teaching about, I, I want to say it was actually maybe John chapter 9 or maybe one of the other teachings, it's the one where Jesus, you know, spits and rubs that on the man's eyes. So he brings up a man on the stage and then begins to like, I mean, really like spit. Like he is snorting. It is not just saliva. It is mucus. It is all of that. And then in front of the whole church, rubs it on the man's eyes. Okay, great. So volunteers? Um, yeah, no. <laughs> Family worship Sunday is about to get excited. Um, no. And his point, his point was, you know, in order for Jesus to provide a healing in your life, things are going to have to get a little messy. Things are going to have to get nasty. Now, I'm not trying to be a hater, okay? I, I'm, that's not the worst point in the world. But is that, a, is that, what, is that what that text means? It's kind of a question you got to ask. Like, does it mean, like, in order for Jesus to heal you, things are going to have to get a little nasty? I mean, that's not incorrect, antithetical to the gospel, that Jesus does call you to die in order to live, right? To give up things to follow him. Sure, sure, things will get, you know, in the eyes of the world, you, you, foolish. Just as foolish as wiping saliva on someone's face. But is that what the point of that story is? Because even though, like, that could be kind of moving or... Well, I mean, moving is one word for it, okay? It moves you, you get a, an emotion, I'll let you decide which emotion you feel when you hear a story like that. But is that what we see here in the text? Is that exactly how this is laid out? That we could just kind of take the metaphors of spiritual blindness and whip up some cool phrases and sayings and it sounds good, and so that's what it means, right? How do we actually understand spiritual blindness? You see, what you need to see, pun intended, is that these parables, these healings that Jesus is doing, are actually, excuse me, parables in action. And the two healings of blindness that are in the Gospel of Mark bookend this section about discipleship. The first healing was in Mark chapter 8, and it's a, it's fascinating story, right? Because it's the healing where it looks like it didn't work. Like Jesus is like, be healed. And the man's like, he's like, can you see? He's like, no, it's, I see trees, people walking around. Right? And he's like, okay, let's try it again. Be healed. Is it like Jesus just didn't have it that day? Like everyone has a bad day. And so he had to take another crack at it. No, of course not. Jesus can heal with a thought. The ways in which he heals people are always to illustrate something. I mean, in fact, Jesus can heal literally without a thought. The woman who just touches him gets healed. So Jesus' healings always come with a measure of teaching. And what's he teaching there? Well, the clear teaching in Mark chapter 8 is that as the disciples are hearing about who Jesus really is and what Jesus has really come to do, they just don't get it. And it's going to take some progressive healing. It's going to take a progressive growing for them to see clearly who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. Right? They, Jesus talks about his death, and the disciples are like, no, no, Peter steps to him and rebukes him. No, 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 no. You won't do that. And then Mark chapter 9, Jesus talks about his death again, and what do the disciples do? Well, they start arguing about who's going to be the greatest. 
They have a literal vision of the transfiguration, and then they still don't see it. And then Mark chapter 10, here comes James and John, right after Jesus says, you got to be like little children, and they're like, yeah, sure, but uh, left and right, can we call those? Can we call those seats? Right? Can we, can we get dibs? Right? And Jesus is like, you still don't see it. And so the bookend then is, it is it ends with blind Bartimaeus saying, look, these people still don't see it. And the only way to correct the spiritual blindness is Jesus is going to have to supernaturally intervene. And the way that that's going to happen, though, is that we first have to understand what is this spiritual blindness? So what does it mean to be spiritually blind? If that's what this parable is teaching us, what does it mean to be spiritually blind? Well, I think ultimately what we see the blindness, what we see between everyone here is that there's a blindness to the way of the cross, to the way of Jesus. And that means two things, is that there's a blindness to, right, on one side of the cross, what sin and depravity actually means, what Jesus came to deal with, and thus on the other side then, what, what grace actually means. Let me explain that first one. To be spiritually blind means you actually don't see the depth of what sin really is. What did the rich young ruler ask for when he came to Jesus? What must I do to inherit eternal life? It was all self-focused. What should I do? Here's this rich, young, successful guy. He's done everything, and now he's looking for that next thing to fill him. Like, okay, is it meditation? Okay, is it fasting? Okay, is it, right, next thing you hear? And you're always thinking one extra other thing. Maybe this will be the thing that kind of fulfills me, that sets me straight. And yet Jesus makes it very clear the problem was his question, what must I do? Because he thinks that there's something he can do. He's blind to the reality that there's nothing he can do, and that it's Jesus who has to do it for him. And Jesus invites him into that, right, which we'll we'll get to in a moment. But compare that then also with the disciples who come after that. What do they come to Jesus and they say, let us sit on your right and your left. They ask for thrones. They ask for control. Because they think they're the kind of guys who are wise enough to be in control. The ones who could be lords in Jesus' new kingdom. They think, right, that they could call the shots and that they'd be pretty good at it. Now, just to give you an idea, they tried this once. They gave Jesus an idea for ministry. They were like, yeah, those people didn't listen. How about calling down fire from heaven on them? So thankfully... Jesus doesn't get with their program. He makes them get with his program. But that's what they think. And what we see run through both the rich young ruler and young James and John is that as they approach Jesus, they approach Jesus with the spiritual blindness to their own self-sufficiency. But the thing that's blinding them is that they still think they can do something here. They still think they have something to bring to God. They still think that they, they, don't, they don't need a total savior. They just need a little help. They need the Messiah to topple the government and to put them in power, but like they'll take it from there. They just need that one extra thing because they think they still are sufficient, that their sin doesn't run so deep that they need a Messiah 
who's going to march from Jericho, the 3,500 feet uphill, the 22 miles to Jerusalem, and then make the extra march outside the city to be crucified so that they could actually be saved, so that they could inherit eternal life. They think they're like, Jesus, just, just help us out a little bit, and we'll jump in. We're on the team. And so they're blind to exactly how deep their sin is. Let me, let me give you an illustration of how I've really seen this play out. Is, um, I, I had a member of our church once, um, not here at New Life. It was actually a blind woman. And uh, older, uh, older woman, you know, and... Um, you know, her husband would bring her, and she had grown children and all that. And I mean, lived live the full life for sure. But um, she she wasn't born blind, but she became blind because the medical intervention that she would have needed to to correct her eyesight um, just wasn't uh, covered when when she was younger. And so she progressively became blind. You know, and basically from her teenage years on, was totally blind. And I remember talking about the depths of our sin and how the cross shows us that we are, you know, as as the quote often is, right, that we are far more sinful than we could ever imagine because it means Jesus actually had to die for us. I'm talking about how we grow as Christians is that we actually grow in an understanding of our depths and our sin, that we, we start off spiritually blind to that, but it's God who opens our eyes to realize we have no hope apart from Jesus, and that we continue to grow spiritually by continuing to grow in an awareness of our sin before a holy God. And before I could get to the next point, she raises her hand, right, and just says, that is so hard, though, and just starts weeping. Now, can I be totally honest with how I reacted? I looked at this woman and was like, how bad could you be? I mean, you're this nice, sweet, old, blind lady. Like, what, what are you getting into that I don't know about that you're weeping in the classroom now over how sinful you feel? And she just starts saying, you know, it's just so hard because my selfishness, right, and my self-centeredness is just, it's always there with me. And it's just so much to bear. I'm so sinful. And my first response was, Really? And what hit me in that moment is that, sure, we could chalk it up to, well, you know, I mean, maybe she's just a little emotional, right? And that's her temperament. But actually, I think this woman could see more clearly than me. This woman understood her selfishness and her self-centeredness, even though you'd look at her and think, this is the sweetest woman ever and her faith is incredible, she would also say at the heart of that faith is an awareness of her sin and a desperate need for her Savior, Jesus, that she would weep. And so that's what it means to be blind to our depravity, but we can also then, if you're blind to our, the depth of our sin, we're also blind to the nature of grace. And I think this comes through really clearly again with the rich young ruler. Jesus tells him, sell everything so that you'll have treasure in heaven and you can be with me. 
And the rich young ruler goes away sad. But Jesus didn't tell him to become poor. Jesus told him, give up a lesser treasure for a greater treasure. And Jesus didn't send him away to be lonely, even though that's how he walks away. Jesus invites him into being with him. And all he had to do was admit there was nothing he could do and follow Jesus with everything he had. But he couldn't do it. That was a price that he couldn't pay. The rich man couldn't afford it. We see this also with James and John. They're living for a different kingdom. They don't understand that what Jesus is going to do for them is he's going to die for them. Peter doesn't want Jesus to die for him. He wants Jesus to conquer with him. And yet they don't understand that because they're blind to their sin, they can't see how much more of a treasure they're offered. That like the rich young ruler, they're thinking, no, 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 this is the paradigm we're going to operate under, right? And you're going to make this happen. And Jesus is like, no, trade in that paradigm for an even better one. You think it'll be awesome to have power? It's even better to have my love. You think it's great to go win? I'm telling you, the way we're going to win is we're going to lose. And I understand you want to be conquerors, but I'm inviting you to be more than conquerors. I'm inviting you to be children of the Most High God. But they can't see it. And you see what blindness does to both of them? The rich young ruler goes away lonely and sad. Talk about feeling stuck and alone. James and John, they also are a little sad. They feel stuck. And they're actually destroying their own community of disciples. Because their request says, uh, you know, that basically they wanted to one-up everyone else. And it says that the other disciples were indignant with them. And so they're stuck and alone. And Jesus is saying, this is why you need a divine intervention. So if that's what spiritual blindness is, is that it blinds us to the depths of our sin and also the amazing, incredible grace that Jesus offers us, a greater treasure than the lesser treasures we would want to hold on to. If that's what it means to be spiritually blind, what does it look like to have spiritual sight? What's spiritual sight look like? If spiritual blindness is ultimately blinded by your own self-sufficiency, living according to the standards of the world, unable to see the depths of your sin and the amazing grace that's offered in Jesus, what does it look like to have spiritual sight? Remember, this is a parable in action. Jesus is doing this healing as a way to teach. And so what's he teach us? Well, he's teaching us by way of contrast. You see, the comparison between the rich young ruler and James and John shows how they're similar. They're living the same way. Is that even who you'd think of the model disciples, James and John, they're just like the rich young ruler. But the one who clearly sees is the blind beggar who actually has real spiritual sight. Jesus asks him that same question that he asked James and John just a few verses ago. What do you want me to do for you? And so how does Bartimaeus answer? Well, first off, right away, he sees Jesus as a king from whom he needs mercy. So he understands the depths of his sin. He understands that he is not sufficient. He's not coming to Jesus for an add-on. He's coming to Jesus 
with nothing in hopes to gain everything. And so he asks for mercy. He's desperate. He comes humbly. But he approaches confidently. He comes because, I mean, think about it. Who do you ask to fix your sight? You only ask someone who you think can do it. So, so maybe a, a specialist, right? Hey, can you correct my vision? But we're talking, can you make me go from blind to seeing a miracle? Can you restore my vision? Let me recover my sight. And so he, he's coming to Jesus confidently, knowing, I know you can do this. And so when you ask, what do I want? I'm going to tell you right now. I want to recover my sight. Now pause for a minute. Is the lesson here that you just have to be careful what you ask for? Don't be like James and John. Don't ask for too much that reveals your selfishness, right? Just ask for, like, the reasonable things. You know, don't ask for thrones. Ask for healings, right? Don't ask for the moon. Just ask for some of the, some of the simple stuff. Like, don't be like James and John or the rich young ruler asking to inherit eternal life and to sit on thrones, et cetera, et cetera. Just Keep it humble, like make your request to Jesus and be gone. Thankfully, that's not the way we would read this, because thankfully there's nothing reasonable about asking for your sight to be restored, okay? So he's not just as selfish and self-centered and operating under the paradigm that James and John are after, because notice what he says, let me recover my sight, Recover my sight. You see, what he's asking for here is so much more than just the ability to be able to see. But he's asking, Jesus, get me unstuck. And Jesus, I don't want to be alone anymore. You see, because under the Old Testament codes, we read things like in the Qumran that it was the blind who were considered unclean and therefore had to be outside the city. And that's why he's outside on the road to Jericho. Because he's not allowed to be in community. And he's stuck there in the darkness. And what the man asks for is ultimately seen by how the man reacts, is that he just wants to recover his sight so that he can be with Jesus. He wants to come out of the darkness. And he wants to see, and he wants to walk, and he wants to be with Jesus and his men. And Jesus takes him from stuck and alone on the side of the road, to being able to see and to on the way with Jesus. So, how do we go from spiritually blind to spiritually seeing? How do we recover our sight? Is the answer just be like Bartimaeus? Right? You need, now, look, I'll give you seven steps from Bartimaeus. Number, step one, you have to be unashamed. Like, you need to be willing to stand up in a worship service screaming, I need to be healed, okay? Step two, persistent. Step three, approach humbly. Step four, but come confidently, right? Step five, cry out to Jesus as the king of your life. Step six, ask for restoration into the humanity that he's created you for. And step seven, follow him along the way. Orient your life around him. Seven, there you go. Biblical number, good step list, let's go. I could make it 12, but it's Worship Sunday. Let's keep it easy, all right? No, obviously, the answer is not be like a blind Bartimaeus. 
Because you can read this verse or this phrase where it says, your faith has made you well, and think, well, if I just believe like Bartimaeus, I'll get my sight. I'll be able to see spiritually. Is that the lesson? And the answer is no. I won't try to belabor this point too much, because Pastor Jeff's kind of covered it in previous sermons, where we've looked at this exact phrase, your faith has made you well. Jesus uses it in three occurrences. One is here. The other is that we saw earlier in the Gospel of Mark, where the woman who comes and touches his robe, and he says, your faith has made you well. Now, there's a great debate over that woman. We've had this debate even in our life group. Did she have great faith, or did she not have great faith? Right? Because in one sense, she kind of comes superstitiously. You know, it's contrasted with Jairus, the man who comes, kneels before Jesus, says all the right things. I know you can heal her. Come and help me. Right? That's how you're supposed to do it, right? And she just like sneaks up superstitiously. If I can just touch him, I'll be good. Well, that doesn't look like great faith. And then on top of that, you're like, well, but hold on. For her to even enter into that city, for her to even get that close to Jesus, risked so much. Because of her condition of uncleanness, she would have been thrown out of the city. She was not supposed to be there. So was it a great faith? Well, the other time we see this phrase, your faith has made you well, it's where Jesus cleanses the 10 lepers. And we're told only one comes back. And the one who comes back, Jesus talks to him, where's the other ones? You know, why is only one returned? And the man talks with Jesus and Jesus then says to him, go, your faith has made you well. Now hold on. The other lepers still got their healing, even though... What? Their faith didn't seem to make them well. So what's this phrase, your faith has made you well, mean? Well, again, without covering it too much because we've talked about it before, ultimately it comes down to translating it like this. That gift you have that helped you see spiritually who Jesus was to come to him desperately, that gift you had to know that You have no self-sufficiency anymore before Jesus. That has made you well. That gift that you were given of faith from God, who opened your eyes to help you see, that has made you well. So you're like, okay, well then how do we, again, how do we get that gift to have our eyes opened? Because even though Bartimaeus is blind, he can already see before he's healed. He already has spiritual sight. So how do we get the spiritual sight. Well, notice the turning point in this passage. You know, it's set up very clearly. At the top, you have Bartimaeus is stuck on the side of the road and alone. At the bottom, he's changed. He's on the way. He's moving. He has his sight. What happened? The turning point was not Bartimaeus screaming out for help. The turning point is right here in the middle where it says, and Jesus stopped. That word doesn't even cover it. The word is actually, and Jesus stood. That Jesus stood still. All the commotion, all the momentum, and yet in the middle of all that, he stops for this man who's crying out to him desperately. The turning point is that Jesus stands still for this man. And then Jesus calls this man. 
And then Jesus questions this man. And I love the idea here of questioning him because the question is not so that he can actually find out what Bartimaeus wants, but what he's doing is he's restoring to Bartimaeus his own humanity. Bartimaeus wants to recover his sight. Bartimaeus wants to be welcomed back into the community, be made unclean so that he can be with Jesus. And Jesus starts that process by questioning him, by talking to him, by discussing with him. You know, Bartimaeus at this point in his life was just part of the scenery, but Jesus is helping him become a person again. And Jesus sends him and commends him, and then Jesus walks with him. Jesus does all of this for Bartimaeus. He helps him recover everything. And you see, Bartimaeus knew Jesus was the only one who could do that for him. And the way we recover our spiritual sight is we have to look to Jesus, admitting our own blindness. Bartimaeus got his sight because he admitted he was blind. And we have to admit that we're blind in order to begin to receive our sight. We have to admit that we don't get it yet. Even though we've been walking, you know, on this way with Jesus for maybe years, that there's still aspects we don't get that haven't sunk into our hearts yet, that haven't changed us enough yet, that we don't fully grasp what it was Jesus had to die for, the sin in our own hearts, and how it still clings to every little corner of our lives and yet, how Jesus was willing to die for us and love us. You see, Jesus is going on the way to Jerusalem. He brings Bartimaeus on the way with him, and we know that he would go on his way. And that the very question he asks Bartimaeus, he would actually end his life screaming the question, Why, God, have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus can help Bartimaeus recover his humanity because Jesus, of course, is dehumanized himself. Not only that, Jesus can bring Bartimaeus into this community because Jesus was thrust out of this community. Bartimaeus was considered cursed. Look at him, he's blind. But Jesus is the one who walks out of the city is marched out on a cross and considered a curse and left for dead. See, Jesus can stand for Bartimaeus because Jesus will stand alone on the cross, dying for his sins. And you see, this it's when we actually can begin to see the love that God has for us that we can then begin to admit the depth of the sin in our lives that we can then begin to kind of open up to one another about our own depravity, our own vulnerability, our own need for a savior, that we're all blind, like Bartimaeus, and we're all trying to recover our sight. And you see, it's, it's that blindness that keeps us from a community because we don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to be honest about our struggles, right? We want to project strength and power and we want to be unstuck, and we want to be growing, and we want to be on the team that's winning. But Jesus offers us a way better treasure than that, a way better life than that. And 
That's how we regain our spiritual sight. And that's what this meal is for that we enter into now. Is it's to actually help us tangibly see and taste the love of Jesus. And to remind us the depths of our sin, the gap that he covered so that we could recover our own humanity. So let us pray as we come to this table now. Father, as we draw near, we ask that you would help us to see. You would help us to recover our own sight. That we would not be blind to our own sin in our lives. But Father, that we would also not be blind to the incredible love of Jesus. The one who stands for us. God, who will stop everything to heal us, to bring us into this community, to walk alongside us, to help us recover our own humanity. And so bless us now as we enter into partaking of the Lord's table together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we move towards the Lord's Supper, it's important to understand that this meal does not come without a warning. That we're told that whoever would eat or drink of this supper must do so having examined themselves. And they must make sure not to do so in an unworthy manner. You might think, well, what, what does it mean to be worthy? Well, to be worthy means, ultimately, like we've just discussed, to admit you're blind. The only people who can come to this table are the people who admit that they can't see clearly and that they need Jesus to heal them, to open their eyes. And so if that's not you, if you're not quite there yet, we're so glad you're here. We'd love to talk to you more about what that could look like, looking at the claims of Jesus. Or if you're one of our third through fifth graders yet, and you have not talked with one of the elders or gone through our Exploring My Faith class to understand what it means to take this meal, then we'd invite you to, of course, you can come forward and watch with your parents, but... Wait until it is clear that you have an understanding of what this meal is and what we're doing as we partake in it, and that we can see it clearly. Because what we're here to see is what it would take for Jesus to bring us to this table, that he would have to give his body and his blood. That's how dark our sin is, but that's also how great the Lord's grace is. So the way this works at our, our church is that and just a moment, we'll invite you to come forward. You can come through the rows here, and as you will come, there will be a plate for bread, which you could just hold out your hands, and we will place one of those onto your palm. And if you need a gluten-free option, just let us know. We're happy to provide that. And then as you circle around, you will see that there are cups where there is both grape juice and wine, and you can partake according to your conscience and whatever is most suitable for you. You could just throw that away and then circle back to your chair as we meditate on partaking in this sacrament together. So on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink from it 
We're told that as often as we partake of this cup, we show forth the Lord's death until he comes. So let me invite the servers to come forward as I pray for us. Father, we ask now that as we partake in this sacrament, you would strengthen our union with you and our faith in you, that you would help us to see the depths of our sins, the greatness of your grace. And Lord, that as we do this, we understand how you've not only removed the penalty of sin from our lives, but you also are preparing a place for us in the future, that we would partake in this meal with you face to face. And so strengthen us with those truths now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.